I'm glad you guys are here with us this morning. I got two Kleenex boxes just in case I get really sweaty and really get going here, so I'm grateful for that. But I am excited about the book. At the same time, I'm overwhelmed and I'm humbled by it. I'm not going to lie to you. This is a book that is a challenge to read, and it's also even more so a challenge to teach. As a matter of fact, I was reading so many different commentaries this week, so many different things about the book of Revelation. One of the things that came up was, is this is probably the book that people in the church most want taught because they don't understand it. It's also the book that pastors most don't want to teach because they don't understand it. And that's where I found myself over the last handful of weeks, knowing we were coming into Revelation as we were taking these steps. Um, one of the things we've been doing for the past three years is going through the Gospel Project. And in the Gospel Project, as we've been diving into it, we have looked at how the entire Bible points to Jesus. We looked at how the Old Testament points ahead. We talked about the Gospels being the narratives, the, the life of Jesus and the New Testament, the rest of it, the letters and the epistles and such, point back at it. Well, Revelation is no different. It is the close of our Gospel Project, and if you uh, have been with us, you know that there's some of the things the Gospel Project does where it covered Romans in two weeks. I couldn't do that for Revelation. So the kids, they're going to wrap up Revelation a whole lot faster than we will. They'll be done in February. We're going to be done in May. So buckle up because we're going to be going through this and we're going to be getting deep into it. But one thing I need to let you know, just like every other book of the Bible as we've gone through with the Gospel Project, it is all about Jesus. This book is about Jesus and that is my goal. My goal is to point you there to let you see his greatness, to let you see his glory, and we are going to watch it unfold as we dive into this book. Now, you may have seen my email on Friday morning, and I hope that if you did, you had an opportunity to kind of watch the overall background video from the Bible Project. I love the way they do those with the, the illustrations and kind of tie it all together. But I will say the same thing again that I said in that email to kind of open up today. My goal is not to answer all of your questions. You know why? Because I can't. It's not going to be possible for me to do that, but instead my goal is to make much of Jesus because ultimately that's what Revelation's all about. The majesty and the glory of the Lamb who is slain, King Jesus, who's coming again to rule and reign forever. No matter the disagreements that people have about this book, no matter about the point of interpretation that you might have on how to look at it, whether it be a preterist view or a historist view or the futurist view or the idealist view or you don't have any idea about those views, whether you're amillennial, postmillennial, panmillennial, or premillennial, those things are what we're going to focus on. I'm just going to let you know that now because we need to focus instead on this fact. This book was written to give unshakable hope to people who were suffering. Suffering Christians both then and now, and to encourage us to live our lives on mission for him. That is what the book of Revelation is about. It wasn't written to confuse, though it can be confusing. It wasn't written to frighten, though it can be frightening, and it wasn't written to entertain, but there's been some good movies written about it. It was given to believers to read, understand, and most importantly, apply. That's what it was given for, to bear fruit in the, prison, uh, in the present as we expectantly wait to see what's going to happen in the future. So with that, would you do me a favor? Would you open your Bibles to the book of Revelation? 
We're going to only be in the first eight verses today. If you don't know where Revelation is, um, I'm just going to let you know it's in the very back, okay? If you have an appendices, then you're probably going to be right before that. But we're going to Revelation chapter 1 today. And as we're in Revelation chapter 1, we're only going to be doing the first eight verses. If you found your place, I would ask you to stand with me today if you're able. And we're going to read these first eight verses and if you don't mind, follow along. If you don't have your Bible or don't have a digital device, it'll be on the screen. This is what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads it aloud. That's me. Just to let you know, the words of this prophecy. Blessed are the ones who hear the words of this prophecy. That's you. And guess what? Blessed is the one who keeps it. And that should be all of us as what is written because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to whom are to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, from the Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to God and the Father, to him be the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and how it has been preserved over many, many years. And I pray today as we dive into this final book, this book of Revelation, that God, that you truly reveal to us exactly what you want us to hear, exactly what you want us to know, but even more so, exactly what you want us to do. We pray it all in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing with me as we read. To get started, I'm just going to let you know today is going to be a day that we are going to look a bit more historically, kind of kind of get an idea of what this book is, what it's about, why we are in it, and then we're going to kind of see how it applies to launch these next five months. So as we've gone through the Gospel Project, there's been books throughout it. Books like poetry, the Psalms. Books like narratives, the Gospels. Books like the epistles, the letters that we've kind of gone through over the last couple of months. What kind of book is Revelation? Well, Revelation is really three kinds. First, it's an apocalypse. Now, the first thing you think of when you think of apocalypse is Doom and gloom, right? Kind of that weird movie of everything's coming to end. Let me just break it down for you. It's not as bad as it sounds, okay? The second thing we see it is a prophecy. And the third thing we'll see, it is a letter. And it was written to us as verse 3 points out, and we pointed out already, as a blessing to those who read it, as a blessing to those who hear it, and a blessing to those who keep it or apply it. It was given to the Apostle John to write for us some 60 years after he had dropped his nets and followed Jesus. John was the only apostle left. According to tradition, all of the other apostles that had walked and followed Jesus, the disciples, had been martyred or killed for their faith in some way, shape, or form leading up 
to this point. So John is the only one left. And we find him exiled on an island out in the Aegean Sea. And it's called Patmos. And he was there by, or put there by a guy by the name of Emperor uh, Domitian. At that place, he was brought into the presence of the risen Savior to write this letter for the churches there and the churches today. It says in verse 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word apocalypse that I gave you first actually is the word revelation. It means to be revealed. It means to be uncovered. It means to be given to us or the unveiling of the truth. So in it, the truth is given to Jesus by God, then passed on to an angel to be given to John. Now, there's some really cool stuff in this book that I can get into about how it ties into the Old Testament, but we don't have time for that today. I will tell you this. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. I didn't count those. That was just what the commentary told me, okay? But here's what we need to see in it. That in those 404 verses, 285 Old Testament direct references are made. 500 plus Old Testament indirect references are made. It's all being tied back to the Old Testament. But really quick, I want to show you in this very first verse is one of the first, or actually really the first, tie back to the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, going back to the Old Testament, you will see the same phrasing of the, the revelation of what is to come and made it known. It's the only other place in the Bible you'll see this. Same three words in a verse, but it is talking about when Daniel's interpreting the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar had this crazy dream of this statue with clay and silver and gold, and you can look deeper into that. The whole thing's there found in Daniel chapter 2. And the whole idea is Daniel is interpreting a whole bunch of symbols. And all these symbols come to a place where in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, he says these words, there's going to be a kingdom that is going to come that will never be destroyed. Interesting that John would tie that into the first words he's going to talk about in this revelation, that there's a kingdom to come that will not be destroyed. Jesus says, you remember Daniel, John? Here you go. Here's where we're at, and here's where we're going. And as he says it, he says, I'm going to reveal the things that are to come, and I'm going to do it both literally and symbolically. We see lots of signs. We see lots of symbols that are going to be throughout this book. As a matter of fact, one commentator said the book of Revelation is more like a picture book than it is like a theology book. There's so many signs and pictures there for us to see. I, because I don't read books often, I like to watch movies, and so I actually see it more as a movie, and not just a movie, but a movie series. Uh, I'm a big Star Wars fan. As a matter of fact, uh, I, not as much as my son who tells me things. I'm like, what? Where did that come from? Oh, it's the backstory of this and that and this and that. But you know Star Wars. It, it has multiple episodes. I see the book of Revelation having multiple episodes, but like Star Wars, each episode points to a main character. In Star Wars, the main character is the name Skywalker. In Revelation, the name is Jesus. All of it points to Jesus. Even though there's plots and even though there's subplots, and if you watch the book of Boba Fett or you watch the Mandalorian, those little spin-offs that go this way, all of it points back to a main character. As we read the book of Revelation, you're going to see plots and subplots and little spin-offs going this way. All of it points 
to Jesus. And if you watch Marvel series or anything like that, and you know that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has phase one, phase two, phase three, and they're now into phase four, thing is, they know the end of the story. The end of the story is written. We just haven't got to see the movie yet. And what we're seeing here in Revelation. And if you break it down and you jumped into it, this is kind of how we're going to go through it all the way through May. Episode one for Revelation is Revelation one through three and it's messages to the churches, encouraging the troops, challenging them and even calling them out where they're wrong. Then you have episode two, which is Revelation four through seven. That is the worship of the lamb. Episode three, Revelation eight through 10 the righteous judgments coming down from a righteous redeemer. Episode 4, 11 through 13, opposition, the dark side is introduced. The great thing about this versus Star Wars is, is the dark side seemed to be stronger in Star Wars. The rebels had to do all kinds of crazy things to fight it. I will tell you in this episode, there's total domination by God, by the good side. So that's the only place I think really where we, we have to make sure we don't see it in that movie form because episode five then brings us to that wrath of God. The wrath of God unleashed in Revelation 14 through 19. Then episode six or 19 through 22, and that is the reign of the Almighty King. We sang about the Almighty King this morning. There's no one greater. There's no one higher. The Almighty King will reign. And really the last half of chapter 22 is interesting. If you're into Marvel, you know you don't leave when the movie's over, do you? Because there's always the end credit scenes. End of Revelation chapter 22 is kind of like an end credit scene that brings it back to the present saying, you know what, guys? Because of all this, live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. So within that, all these episodes, I'm not sure if you're one that like, like us, but we like to watch the, the breakdowns on YouTube. There's a bunch of people that are really nerdy and have a whole lot of time to look at an episode and say, oh, this is all the Easter eggs that you've missed. Well, I think the episodes of Revelation also have some Easter eggs to kind of point us and bring these symbols together to remind us there's parts of this book that are supposed to be taken literally, and then there's other parts of the book that are supposed to be taken more from a symbolic point of view. And these symbols, they point to Jesus and God's kingdom being brought to the earth, being set up on the earth. And not just symbols, but there's also numbers. There's literally an opportunity for us to take an entire sermon to break down the numbers that are found in the book of Revelation and what they symbolize. But I'm going to task you to do this. Um, right now, media is a, an or is a uh, study, Bible study online thing that we have. We've had it for a while as a church. A lot of our connection groups use it. If you don't have it yet, shoot us an email at info at paragonchurch.com and I will put you on the list. But you can look at some of these guys that are like college professors. They can go a little bit deeper. Dave Moore, where's Dave? Dave right here. His Wednesday night connection group is actually also going to be going through Revelation. The discussion can take place there better than it can here. Get involved in that. Do that. Follow along so you can see this. But I just want to touch on a few things that are in the book with the numbers. The first thing you're going to see is numbers like 12. They're number 12, and it's really it's multiples, like 144,000. You've probably heard that number before. That represents God's people. So when you see the number 12 or its multiples, that's what it's representing. You'll see the number 10 or 1,000, like millennium. You'll see that. Well, that symbolizes the completeness of time. 
The number four is the completeness of the world. The number three, the completeness of God. The number seven, which by the way is four plus three, is the completeness of everything. It's the completeness, the complete perfection that we see there. So the cool thing is, is you're going to see in this, in number seven, a whole, whole lot, like some 50 times. And that seven is going to show like the seven churches that we're going to dive into in two weeks. The seven spirits, the seven letters, the seven lampstands. The complete judgment of God is also in the midst of the sevens. And that's the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And like I said, there's a whole, whole lot more we could dive into with that. But I'll let you kind of do that on your own, maybe some home study. The one thing I did see when I looked at the symbols, and I, I want to make sure we have it as a takeaway, is as we look at the book of Revelation, there's nothing here by accident. God has a plan. It's planned, purposeful, and complete. And as we look at that, I think we can go back to what we talked about last week. If you are here last week as we did communion, our theme for the year is trust God because he knows. And the book of Revelation is going to unfold that before us. I told you there's three parts to Revelation. First is the apocalypse side. and That's kind of what we just talked about there. The second one was, as a quick one we'll look at, is the prophecy side. The prophecy side says this letter is that God's kingdom is here. Not even the fact that it's coming, but it is here, just like John the Baptist told us back in Matthew chapter 3. It's here, but it will also be made perfect and complete soon. And then the last side of this letter that we see and where we're going to focus on today is that this is a letter to the church. And that's an important thing for us to hold on to as we look at this, because we have to remember this letter was written, received, and read aloud in a church service and then kept or applied to the lives. You know what that tells me as I read that and I think about that when it comes to the book of Revelation? That a first century church can hear it once, that it can grasp its concepts and apply it. That means to me that maybe we've made it a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. Maybe we have made it too much about us and less about Jesus. They, as a first century church, probably understood some of the different symbols better than we do, so that's where we need to go a little deeper. But they grasped it. They got it. They didn't have right now media. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have commentaries. They just heard it and did it. So that is what we need to, I believe, take away as we move forward with this. We need to make sure that we see what God puts in there and things also not to see things that he didn't put in there because sometimes we can add to it. And unfortunately, there's lots of people who see lots of things that aren't actually in there and they take things the way that God didn't actually for it to mean. I know you'd probably love for me to go, this is how you're supposed to take it. I know you want me to answer the question, well, when is all of this going to happen? I would love to answer that question for you. When will the prophecies be fulfilled? How do we interpret what is written about the future? I would love for to be able to do that. But let me just tell you something. For the last 2,000 years since this letter came out, there are guys and ladies way smarter than me that have fought and argued about this and nobody has come to a complete conclusion yet. So I cannot give that to you today. What I can do is I can just give you a real brief touch on the different views that are out there, but then I'm going to add something to it just so you guys know. The first thing is, there's a preterist view. 
And the Preterist view says basically that Revelation was actually fulfilled in the first few centuries of Christianity. It basically said it was done when the fall of the Roman Empire fell, and, and the book is done. There's a view of the historicist view. It focuses on the fulfillment of Revelation during Western church culture. Basically, you take from Martin Luther to now, and it's happening now as we go. It kind of focuses more on us than it does on you know, the first church that the letter was actually written to. Um, the futurist view. Basically, nothing's been fulfilled yet. And this is kind of divided into two categories itself. One category says it's going to happen literally and chronologically as it's written, and the other one says it's not going to happen as literally and as chronologically as it's written within this futurist view. And then there's what's called the idealist view. The idealist view, it happens in cycles. There's always a constant good versus evil is taking place, so it rises and it falls, and it rises and it falls, and that's kind of the view that's there. There's also a group that takes all four of these and takes the best points and leaves out the bad points in it. So it's kind of one of those, well, I'm not 100% sure on which one's right. I would love to be able to tell you this is the way it is, but each one of them, I believe, has great points, and each one of them has weak points. And like I said, way smarter people have debated over this than I could ever even imagine to be. But what I can say is this. No matter what view you might have, the person next to you might have a different view than you. It's not something that's supposed to divide the church. It's not something that's supposed to separate us. It doesn't change what this book has called us to do. The book has called us to live for Jesus. Those are the closing words. I mean, if you look and you look at the last 8, 10, 12 verses of Revelation, that's what it calls us to do. Live for Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, this is what you need to do. You need to study. You need to really break down and figure out what thing. No, you need to live for Jesus, and we can't push others away in the process of that, to keep and apply what it says in the present as we expectantly wait of what is to come. Well, those are the first kind of interpretations. Then you add in these millennial views, and you've probably heard these before too. Um, I grew up in a conservative Baptist church, and we were pre-everything. We just wanted to get out of here before anything happened. And, and the, the, the thinking is, is that sounds good, but there are so many other people that, that have Bible verses and, and strengths of, of what to do and how it's supposed to go. And from Revelation chapter 20, it talks about Christianity's reign and, and Satan being bound and a thousand years of peace happen. And the pre is, is, well, Jesus comes back before that. The ah is he comes back during it, and the post means he comes back after it. The pan, which I like to kind of jokingly say I associate myself with, is it's going to pan out no matter what I believe. It's going to happen because God has it planned already. Again, this shouldn't be a divisive issue. This shouldn't be something that, that separates us. What should separate us is whether or not Jesus Christ is the Son of God or not. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ came, lived, died for your sins, rose again, conquered death, conquered hell, conquered Satan, or not, that's divisive. Because one says you're a Christian, the other one says you're not. That's where the division comes in that we can see in it all. Those are the primary things for us to work through. Secondary things, they kind of have a tendency to create all of the uh, denominations that we have. Why there's Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and there's some secondary things that are out there. They divide us in just a way of belief for the local church where you kind of have your groups that you come together with 
That's understandable. But even the revelation stuff, I don't think falls in that second tier. I think it falls all the way down to the third tier, where it really doesn't matter as much as we tend to make it matter. What it actually does is it takes our focus off the goal. See, I read one commentator this week, and I thought it was pretty funny when he said it. He said, the thousand years of peace is the things that Christians like to fight most about. The thousand years of peace is what Christians like to fight most about. Guys, we have to keep our focus as we look through this book. And we have to see it in its context. See it from the eyes of the church that it was written to. See it from the eyes of the church that was really persecuted. Their friends and their family members had been killed. Their friends and their family members had been burned alive as a candle in Nero's garden. Their friends and their family members were thrown to lions for sport. Things did not look good, and they weren't going to get any better. That was the church that this was written to. Yet this church is a church that needed hope, and this letter gives hope. And where does that hope come from? The fact that God is in control. We also need to see the point of this book and this study is not to try and get you to try and join my interpretation or to come alongside you on where you need to fall millennially. It's not to confuse you. It's not to cause division. But instead, we look at the text. We see the main purpose of the book, and we see Jesus glorified. See, the, the, the main purpose of this book, I truly believe, is not primarily about future things. It's about now and giving us hope today finding hope in this letter in the middle of all the questions that we might have i mean you know you know as well as i do that if you were in the middle of the first century church you'd ask the question god what are you doing where are you in the middle of all of this because we ask it today and we don't suffer near the persecution god where are you he says hey i got it all under control i got the whole plan it's all laid out just trust me just trust me. And that's where we find ourselves in all of this. Because we're going to see some crazy stuff ready to go down. As we go through this, we're going to see Exodus-style judgments to the 10th power coming down from bowls and seals and all kinds of crazy stuff. It's going to be crazy to see. In the midst of it, you're going to see a beast come up from the abyss, and you're going to see all of this crazy stuff. And God's got it. He's got it. And we have to... Remember that and trust him. Christ is in control. He knows the plan. He knows us. He loves us. And we can find hope in these words. Also, not just find hope, we need to find challenge. We need to find challenge in these words. To keep and apply these words shows up 10 different times throughout Scripture. 10 different times uh, in the book of Revelation. Here in the first chapter that we looked at, one in the last chapter, as we've already kind of pointed to, like I said, those last couple of verses that say keep and apply, and then eight other times in between. Why do you think John kept saying it? Well, I think the reason why he kept saying it is because this world is very seductive, and it wants to pull you away from Christ. As a matter of fact, the devil came to kill, steal, and destroy. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. Um, as, as we look, the fact that Jesus 
came to give us life. The devil came to kill, steal, and destroy. And he does it not in an ugly way. He does it in a seductive way. He wants to pull us away. And you think the first century church had to deal with that? Absolutely. If you know anything about history, you know the Roman culture. And the Roman culture was way worse than our current culture. Now ours is heading that direction, but we're not there yet. So there was a lot of seduction, a lot of things to say, hey, come and compromise your faith and follow after the things of the world. And that was really where it was coming from. So what this letter is, there's a challenge to remain faithful. Remain faithful. Keep the faith in the middle of all the things that the world wants to do to pull you away. So first, we find hope in the letter. Second, we find challenge in the letter. Third, I've already mentioned it, but we find blessing in the letter. I'll read it to you again from verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. We are promised blessing for remaining faithful. We're promised blessing for remaining faithful. Are you remaining faithful to him? That's my question for you. Are you lured by the world? It's a question only you can answer, honestly. When we're done with Revelation in May, we're going to jump into the Beatitudes for the summer and then into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount for the rest of the year. In that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wraps up with where are you building your house at? On the rock or on the sand? Are you remaining faithful or are you not? Where are you building your house at? You have to look at your life. You have to answer the question because only you can be the one who does it and answer it honestly. Are you following Jesus? Are you taking up your cross? Are you denying yourself? And are you following him on a daily basis? Where are you putting your trust? In the sand or on the rock? I love what the missionary Jim Elliott said. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What are we holding on to? And while there's promise of blessing, there's also promise of judgment. We see judgment in this letter for those who aren't in Christ. Remember episode five? Not the wrath of Khan, but the wrath of God. The wrath of God coming onto those who are not in Christ. Let me ask you this question. Who is this letter written to? A church. Why do you think he would bring that up within the church? I think the reason's twofold. Number one, because church, we have friends and we have family members who are not washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and they are currently under the judgment of God and we need to do something about it. That's the first reason. The second reason is this. There's a lot of people in the church that play church and they're also not under the blood of Christ. They're posers. They are fakes. They're here for their own personal gain. Same in the first century as it is today. And he says to those people, repent. Get right with God. You need to get your heart right with God. He says, wake up, church. The time is near. Stop playing church and get busy. Be on mission with Christ. This book should drive us to a missional life. A life on mission for him. Don't just try and survive. Don't just try and survive until things get back to normal. You know how many people say, I just can't wait for things to get back to normal. 
Let me just break some news to you. I'm not a prophet, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. Things are not going to get back to normal. Normal is not coming back, but Jesus is. So we should probably be living for him instead of trying to figure out what's going to be normal. Jesus is coming back, and he says, get busy. Get busy making disciples, and get busy preaching the gospel. Matthew 28, Mark 16. This is where we need to be at. Why? Because God is good. We sang about it. Because God is great, and his greatness is all throughout the Bible, but especially lit up and on display in the book of Revelation. Then we see verse 4. John to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. I love just a quick little side note here in that verse. The first thing that John put was not who was and is and is to come. It was who is and was. He wanted to put the primary focus on the fact that God is here now. He is with us now. The same God who has done all the things that he's done. Remember how we came together with the table last week and we said, this is why we remember, because of what God has done. And we can trust him for our future because of it. That's what verse 5 even tells us about. Look what it says. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here we have it, the focus of the book, Jesus. It's on him. Don't lose your feet focus on Jesus. And who is he? Well, you have that past, present, and future. The past, he's a faithful witness. He came, born as a man, lived faithfully, lived perfectly in the world all the way to the cross. And on that cross, the Lamb of God was slain for our sins, and then he rose from the dead, which says the next part, firstborn from the dead. We have victory over death. He is our conquering Savior. You know why? Because we couldn't do it on our own. We had to be saved from our sins. We can't conquer death on our own. None of us can. The moment that Jesus came, lived, and died, it changed the world. And I will guarantee that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it changed your world. It changed your world. I love that song, Glorious Day. You called my name, and I ran out of this grave. From the darkness into your glorious day. How awesome is that? And that is past, and it also shifts us to the present. He shifts to the present here by saying, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That is now. He is in control. He reigns now. He holds the whole world in his hands now. Every good ruler on this planet that ever has been and ever will be is under the authority of God. Every bad ruler is also under the authority of God. No matter who you might think it is, they're under the authority of God. Everything that we see that is going on, God knows. And not only does he know, he ordained it. For me to explain that to you, I can't. But he is who he is. And that opens our hearts and minds to trust him for the future. That there's a king who is coming that will reign forever, like was prophesied in Daniel thousands of years ago. And that will come to completion on one glorious day. And I'm looking forward to that day. And John says, as we do, you have to see Jesus. 
You have to see Jesus. You have to focus on him. You have to trust him. As a matter of fact, that verse continued by saying to him who loves us. He says, feel his love, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The creator of all things loves you. Stop and let that soak in for just a second. Not just feel his love, but experience his freedom. It says, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. You know what? You're more than forgiven. You are more than forgiven. You're free. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. Sin binds. It steals our life. It kills us. It destroys us. But we have been set free from that. Why do we hold on to our sin? Why do we have the shame that we have for things that we've done in our past when God has forgiven us for them, when we accepted his son as our Savior? Why do we hold on to those things and let them continue to weigh us down, experience his freedom, understand your place in him? The next part of that verse says, he made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Made us a kingdom, made us priest to God, his Father. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have constant access to God. Do you realize that wasn't a normal thing before Christ came? That only a few select priests had access to God? But because of Jesus Christ tearing the veil, we have access to him. Who are we? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, Paul tells us these words. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. But look, listen to what it says here in verse 20. Therefore, because of all the things, we have this message of reconciliation, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you know what an ambassador is? An ambassador, by definition, is a respected official acting as a representative of a nation. They're sent from a foreign land to their role, and they reflect the official position of the sovereign body that gave them authority. You know who gave us authority? Jesus. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to reflect the official position, and we're supposed to be reconciling people to Christ, pleading to this world to come back into relationship with him. That's who we are. We also get to worship him. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Give him your praise. Give him your adoration. Lift him up, not ourselves. This is revelation, the uncovering, the unveiling of the greatness of God and the greatness of Jesus Christ who is worthy to be worshiped. And that leads us to live for him now with an anticipation for the future. Verse 7 and 8 says this, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That is us, by the way. We're the ones who pierced him. He was pierced for our transgressions. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. This is more allusions back to Daniel chapter 7, as well as Zechariah 12. But he's basically saying this. Jesus is coming back. But this time, he's not coming humbly in a manger in some know-nothing town in the Middle East. He's coming on the clouds as a triumphant, conquering king. And people are going to see him. And they will either receive him or they will reject him. Which leads us to the last verse that we're going to see today as God says, one of the few times he's quoted specifically saying, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. The first thing you see here is the Alpha and Omega. Chapter 22 will actually expand on this when we get there, when it's talking specifically about Jesus. It says, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is speaking to the character of God, the great I am, which leads to him saying, the one who is, who was, and is to come. I always was. I always will be. There was never a time, and there will never be a time that God is not. We have to hold on to that. Never a time that he's not in control. Never a time that he's not present. Never a time that he's not eternal. He is complete. Guess what? We find hope in that. Even in the midst of everything we're going to, we find hope in that. The Almighty. This is a word that shows up ten times in the New Testament. Nine of them are found in Revelation. Nine of them. He is all-powerful. Our God is all-powerful. Our God is all-knowing. Our God is ever-present. Our God is in complete control. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our very lives. So the question comes back to, are you living for him? Are you trusting him with your life? Let's pray together. Father, thanks again for your word. And thanks for, again, the way you preserved it. The way you gave it to John. And over thousands of years brought it to us. So that we could see. So that we could begin to understand. So that we could just focus on the fact that you are in control. That you have a plan. That you are God and that we are not that you are worthy of our praise, that you are worthy of our trust, that you are worthy of our very lives. God, I pray that you are speaking to us today because as it said, blessed is the one who reads it, blessed is the one who hears it, but blessed is the one who keeps it and applies it. Thank you for that promise of blessing. Help us, give us the strength to keep it and apply it. Pray it in your name, amen.